Chapter Fifteen of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifteen, The Communion Service. No doctrine, perhaps, has done so much to cause disunion in the Church as the doctrine of communion enshrined in the Lord's Supper. A feast of love in idea, it has been pre-eminently a feast of hate in reality, and the fiercest contests have been waged over this last legacy of the Redeemer. Down to the time of the Reformation it was the central service of the Church universal, Eastern and Western alike. It was the liturgy, distinguished from every other office by this distinctive name. Round this rite revolved the whole of the other services, as weekdays around the Lord's Day, on its due performance was lavished everything of beauty and of splendour that wealth could bring. Sweetest incense, most harmonious music, richest vestments, rarely jewelled vessels, pomp of procession, stateliness of ceremony, all bought their glory and their beauty to render magnificent the reception of the present God. Among the reformed churches the festival was shorn of its grandeur. It became once more the simple Supper of the Lord. No memorial sacrifice, but only a commemorative rite. No coming of the Lord to men, but only a sign of the union through faith of the believer with the Saviour. At the present time the old contest rages, even within the bosom of the Reformed Church of England. One party still clings to the elder belief of a real presence of Christ in the elements themselves, or in indissoluble connection with them, and therefore celebrates the service with much of the ancient pomp, while the other furiously rejects this so-called idolatry, and makes the service as bare and as simple as possible. Both parties can claim parts of the communion office as upholding their special views, for the English service has passed through much of tinkering from high and low, and retains the marks of the alterations that have been made by each. To those outside the church, this office has particular attraction, as being, in a special manner, a link between the past and the present, and being full of traces of the ancient religion of the world, that Catholic sun-worship of which Christianity is a modernised revival. From the Nicene Creed, in which Jesus is described as God of God, Light of Light, Very God of Very God, Begotten, Not Made, Being of One Substance with the Father, By Whom All Things Were Made, from this point we breathe the full atmosphere of the elder world we find ourselves engaged in the worship of that light of light, who, being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, has for ages and ages been adored as incarnate in Mithra, in Krishna, in Osiris, in Christ. We give thanks for the redemption of the world by the death and passion of the Son Saviour, who suffered on the cross for us, who lay in darkness and in the shadow of death. We praise him who fills heaven and earth with his glory, and who rose as the paschal lamb, and has taken away the sin of the world, bearing away in the sign of the lamb the darkness and dreariness of the winter. We remember the Holy Ghost, the fresh spring wind, who, as it has been a mighty wind, came to bring us out of darkness into the clear light of the sun. Then we see the priest with his face turned to the sun rising, take the bread and wine, the symbols of the God, and bless them for the food of men, these symbols being changed into the very substance of the deity, for are they not, in very truth, 
of him alone? How naturally does the eternal work of the sun, daily renewed, express itself in such lines as, Into bread his heat is turned, into generous wine his light. And, imagining the sun as a person, the change to flesh and blood becomes inevitable, while the fact that the solar forces are actually changed into food, without forfeiting their solar character, finds expression in the doctrines of transubstantiation and the real presence. Keys of the Creeds, page 91. After this union with the Deity, by partaking of his very self, we praise once more the Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world, and is most high in the glory of God the Father. The resemblance is made the nearer in the churches where much of ceremony is found, although noticeable in all, since that resemblance is stereotyped in the formulas themselves, but in the more elaborate performances the old rites are more clearly apparent, in the tonsured head of the priest, in the sons often embroidered on vestment and on altar-cloth, in the rays that surround the sacred monogram on the vessels, in the cross imprinted on the bread, and marking each utensil, in the lighted candles, in the great vine chiselled on the chalice, in all these, and in many other symbols, we read the whole story of the sun-god, written in hieroglyphics as easily decipherable by the initiated as is the testimony of the rocks by the geologian. But passing by this antiquarian side of the office, we will examine it as a service suitable for the use of educated and thoughtful people at the present time. The rubric which precedes the office is one of those unfortunate rules which are obsolete as regards their practice, and yet which, from their preservation, appear to simple-minded parsons to be intended to be enforced, whereby the said parsons fall into the clutches of the law and suffer grievously. An open and notorious evil liver must not be permitted to come to the Lord's table, and this expression seems to be explained in the exhortation of the office wherein we read, If any of you be a blasphemer of God, an hinderer or slanderer of his word, an adulterer, or be in malice or envy, or in any other grievous crime, repent you of your sins, or else come not to that holy table, lest, after taking of that holy sacrament, the devil enter into you, as he entered into Judas, and fill you full of all iniquities, and bring you to destruction both of body and soul. In a late case the sacrament was refused to one who disbelieved in the devil, and who slandered God's word, on those very grounds and it would seem to be an act of Christian charity so to deny it, but surely to say that part of God's word is contrary to religion and decency must be to slander it, if words have any meaning, and people who do not believe in the devil ought hardly to be sharers in a rite after which the devil will enter into them with such melancholy consequences. It would seem more consistent either to alter the formulas or else to carry them out. True, one clergyman wrote, that the responsibility lay with the unworthy recipient who did nothing else but increase his damnation. But it is scarcely a pleasing notion that the clergyman should stand inviting people to the Lord's table, and, coolly handing to one of those who accept the body of Christ, say, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, when he means, in the delicate language used by the above-mentioned clergyman, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, damn thy body and soul unto everlasting death. No one but a clergyman could dream of so offensive a proceeding, and to those who believe, one so terribly awful. 
The Ten Commandments, which stand in the forefront of the service, are very much out of place as regards some of them, to say nothing of the want of truthfulness in the assertion that God spake these words, etc. In the second we are forbidden to make any graven image, or any likeness of any thing, a command which would destroy all art, and which no member of the congregation can have the smallest notion of obeying. The Jews who made the cherubim over the ark, upon which God sat, are popularly supposed not to have disobeyed this command, because the cherubim were not the likeness of anything in heaven, earth, or water. They were like unicorns, creatures undiscovered and undiscoverable. Yet in direct opposition to this command, Solomon made brazen oxen to support his sea of brass, 1 Kings 7, 25, 29, and lions on the steps of his ivory throne, Kings 10, 19, 20, and God himself said to have ordered Moses to make a brazen serpent. God is described in this same commandment as a jealous God, which is decidedly immoral and unpleasant, who visits the sins of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The justice of this is so obvious that no comment on it is necessary. The fourth commandment is another which no one dreams of attending to. In the first place we do not keep the seventh day at all, and in the second our manservant, our maidservant, and our cattle do all manner of work on the day we keep as the Sabbath. Further, who in the present day believes that, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day? Geology, astronomy, ethnology have taught us otherwise. And among those who repeat the response to this commandment in a London church, not one could probably be found who believes it to be true. The fifth commandment is equally out of place, for dutiful children do not live any longer than undutiful. The remainder touch simple moral duties enforced by all creeds alike, and are noticeable for their omissions, and not for their commissions. The insertion of the Buddhist commandment against intoxication, for instance, would be an improvement, although such a commandment is naturally not to be found in the case of so gross and sensual a people as the ancient Jews. The alternative prayers for the Queen, which follow next, are only worth noting because the first enshrines the doctrine of divine right, which is long since dead and buried, except in church, and the other says that the hearts of kings are in thy rule and governance, and suggests the thought that, if this be so, it is better to be out of that rule and governance, the effects on the hearts of kings not having been specially attractive. The Nicene Creed comes next, and is open to the objections before made against the Apostles' Creed. The last clauses relating to the Holy Ghost are historically interesting, since the and the son forms the filioque which severed eastern from western christendom footnote a short but very graphic account of the shameful transaction by which the filioque clause was so to speak smuggled into the nicene creed is to be found in the first ten or twelve pages of the shilling pamphlet written by edmund s Fowles, b d entitled the church's creed or the crown's creed clearly provides too that the church of rome once held that the Holy Ghost only proceeded from the Father, as the Dominus in it can only refer to the Father. End of footnote. Who with the Father and the Son together ought to be worshipped and glorified would be more true to fact than is, since the Holy Ghost is sadly ignored by modern Christendom, and has a very small share of either prayers or hymns. Yet he is the husband of the Virgin Mary, and the Father of Jesus Christ. 
He is, therefore, a very important, though puzzling person in the Godhead, being the father of him from whom he himself proceeds. This is a mystery, and can only be understood by faith. The texts that follow are remarkable for their ingenious selection. Who goeth a warfare, etc., Corinthians 9, 7. If we have sown, etc., 1 Corinthians 9, 9. Do ye know, etc., 1 Corinthians 9, 13. He that soweth little, etc., 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Let him that is taught, Galatians 6, 6. The pervading selfishness of motive is also worth noting. Give now in order that ye may get hereafter. Never turn thy face from any poor man, and then the face of the Lord shall not be turned away from thee. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and look what he layeth out, it shall be paid him again. If thou hast much, give plenteously. If thou hast little, do thy diligence gladly to give of that little. For so gathered thou thyself a good reward in the day of necessity. No free glad giving here, no willing joyful aid to a poorer brother, because he needs what I can give, no ready offer of the cup of cold water simply because the thirsty is there and wants the refreshment, ever the hateful whisper comes, Thou shalt in no wise lose thy reward. These time-serving offerings are then presented to God by being placed upon the holy table, and we then get another prayer for the Queen, Christian kings, authorities, bishops, and people in general, concluding with thanks for the dead, not a cheerful subject to bless God for, if there chance to be present any mourner whose heart is sore with the loss of a beloved one. At this point the service is supposed to end, when no celebration of the Holy Communion is intended, and here we find two exhortations or notices of celebration, from the first of which we have already quoted. In the second we cannot help remarking the undignified position in which God is placed. It is a grievous and unkind thing not to come to a rich feast when invited thereto wherefore we are to fear lest by withdrawing ourselves from this holy supper we provoke god's indignation against us consider with yourselves how great injury you do unto god what a very curious expression is god thus at the mercy of man surely then of all living beings the lot of god must be the saddest if his happiness and his glory are in the hands of each man and woman, the greater his knowledge, the greater the misery. And as his knowledge is perfect, and the vast majority of humankind know and care nothing about him, his wretchedness must be complete. All things being ready, the clergyman begins by another exhortation of somewhat threatening character. So is the danger great if we receive the same unworthily, for then we are guilty of the body and blood of Christ our Saviour. We eat and drink our own damnation, not considering the Lord's body. We kindle God's wrath against us. We provoke him to plague us with diverse diseases and sundry kinds of death. Surely we cannot be plagued with more than one kind of death at once, and we can't die sundry times, even after the communion. One almost wonders why anyone accepts this very threatening invitation, even though there are advantages promised to meet partakers. The High Church party have indeed the right to talk much of the real presence, since ordinary bread and wine have none of these fearful penalties attached to the eating and drinking, and some curious change must have taken place in them before all these terrible consequences can ensue. What would happen if some consecrated bread and wine chanced to be left by mistake 
and a stray comer into the vestry eat it unknowingly. One thinks of Anne Askew, who told that a mouse eating a crumb fallen from the host would infallibly be damned, replied, Alack, poor mouse! Then follows a confession of the most cringing kind, fit only for the lips of some coward supplicant crouching at the feet of an eastern monarch. It is marvellous that free English men and women can frame their lips into phrases of such utter abasement, even to a god. Manliness in religion, it is sorely needed, unless, indeed, God be something smaller than man, and be pleased with the degradation painful to human eyes. The prayer of consecration is the central point of the ordinance. Of old they prayed for the descent of the Holy Ghost on the elements. For whatsoever the Holy Ghost toucheth is sanctified and clean. It is not explained how the Holy Ghost, being omnipresent, manages to avoid touching everything, and now the priest asks that in receiving the bread and wine we may be partakers of Christ's body and blood, and repeats the words, This is my body, this is my blood, laying his hand alternately over the bread and the wine. Now, if this means anything, if it is not mere mockery, it means that after the consecration the bread and wine are other than they were before. If it does not mean this, the whole prayer is simply a farce, a piece of acting, scarcely decent under the circumstances. But flesh and blood? Putting aside the extreme repulsiveness of the idea, the coarseness of the act, the utter unpleasantness of eating flesh and drinking blood, all of which has become non-disgusting by habit and fashion, and the distastefulness of which can scarcely be realised by any believer, putting aside all this, is there any change in the bread and wine? Examine it, analyse it, test it in any and every fashion. Still it answers back to the questioner, bread and wine. Are our senses deceived? Then try a hundred different persons. All cannot be deceived alike. Unless every result of experience is untrustworthy, we have here to do with bread and wine, and with nothing more. But faith is needed. Oh, yes, there is the secret. No flesh and blood without faith. No miracle without credulity. Miracle-working priests are only successful among credulously disposed people. Miracles can only be received by those who think it less likely that nature should speak falsely than that man should deceive. Those who believe in this change through consecration cannot be touched by argument. They have closed their eyes that they may not see, their ears that they may not hear. No knowledge can reach them, for they have shut the gateways whereby it could enter they are literally dead in their superstition, buried beneath the stone of their faith. The reception of the body and blood of Christ being over, the people having knelt to eat and drink, as is only right when eating and drinking Christ, John 6.57, the Lord's Prayer is said for the second time, a prayer and thanksgiving follows, confined to, We and all thy whole church. For the Spirit is the same as that of the prayer of Christ, I pray not for the world, but for them whom thou hast given me. John 17.9 And then the service winds up with the Gloria in Excelsis and the Benediction. Such is the bounden duty and service offered by the Church to God, the service of which the central act must be either a farce or a falsehood, and therefore insulting to the God to whom it is offered. Regarded as a service to God, the whole communion office is objectionable in the highest degree. Regarded as an antiquarian survival, it is very interesting and instructive. It is surely time that it should be put in its right place, and that its true origin should be recognised. The day is gone by for those barbarous, though poetic, ceremonials, 
the flesh and blood, which was a bold figure for the heat and light of the sun, becomes coarse when joined in thought to a human being. Ceremonies that fitted the childhood of the world are out of place in its manhood, as the play that is graceful in the child would be despicable to the man. These rites are the baby clothes of the world, and cannot be stretched to fit the stalwart limbs of its maturer age, cannot add grace to its form, or dignity to its graver walk. End of chapter 15